Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is February the 19th, 2019, so it's 2-19-19, episode 2384 of the Survival Podcast, and I'm excited about this. I've been planning this one for a while for you guys. It's called Building Soil Fertility, Biology, and Structure in the Garden. When I say structure, I don't mean the structure of your garden. I mean the structure of your soil. What the hell does anybody care about soil structure for? Well, you'll find out today. You'll find out about biology. You'll find out about fertility. We'll talk about some of the myths and misconceptions about soil fertility. The big thing that I want to point out to you guys today, though, is that we are focusing on the garden. We are talking about garden beds here. We are not talking about broad acres. We are not talking about pasture and things like that. All of that stuff's great, but we're going to confine this today to where we're growing basically herbs and vegetables. That's what we're talking about today. It's something that almost everybody in this audience wants to do on some level, whether it's a few containers in the backyard or out on the porch if you're in an apartment or in a little market garden or a small kitchen garden or something like that. Most people do want to grow some annuals. And as much as I love perennials, uh, and they are the long-term strategy when it comes to the food that we eat the most often in, in, our, in our diet, specifically when we try to keep down the carbohydrates so we keep the wheat and stuff like that down we tend to eat vegetables and uh, pretty much every 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 lunch or dinner can have a salad with it and make a person happy if you make a good salad so we're talking lettuce and uh, cucumbers and peppers and tomatoes and tomatillos and all of that good stuff that's the type we're not going to talk about those things today but that's the system that we're talking about growing that stuff so If you participated, because what I wanted to tell you guys is, well, this is another show where if you're either on our Instagram or on the Facebook forum, you got to participate. About half of the show today is direct responses to questions and concerns people brought up when I put out the, the, the topic of the show on those two uh, mediums. And so if you're on either one of those, you get the opportunity to, you know, a lot of times do this. Sometimes you get a couple hours, sometimes I give it a day. It all depends on the subject and the mood that I'm in. So this is going to be a great show. Before I dig into it, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is J.M. Bullion. I, I, I will never, in, in, in the foreseeable future, I can't say never because God knows what could happen. But in, in my estimation, it's probably never going to be a day that I come off and change my recommendation to have at least 5% to 10% of your net worth in silver and or gold that you can put your hands on, that you can touch, that you can hand down to your heirs, that you can transfer wealth with anonymously. That That is the biggest thing I love about silver and gold. I'm not one of these people like the hucksters on Fox News channel during the commercial break telling you you're going to get you know you're going get rich buying silver or it's it's trending up. They've been running the same advertisement, right? They've been running the same damn advertisement for two years, and it's trending up. It's been up, down and all around in those two years. They're lying hucksters. They just want to try to get you to buy their shit. Silver and gold have always been an awesome way to preserve and grow wealth, but they are volatile, and that's why we don't overplay our hand there. The single biggest mistake investors make is not investing in... Shut up! 
Shut up. I hate those commercials. Can you tell? I don't like hucksterism. I'll tell you what, that very company that I'm talking about that I won't name came to me and asked to be a sponsor. I told them that, well, I said it really nicely, but basically piss off. I've got the company that I trust, that I run with, and that's Jam Bullion. And the reason I do that is because they do free shipping. They do a discount for my members. They have the best pricing competitively online that I've seen anywhere, and they never screw up. That is so valuable to me. So one way or another, I do think it makes sense to put silver and gold into your long-term plan. I do think a target over time, not instantly tomorrow morning, but over time of 5% of your net wealth is a really good target for a lot of people. And then you decide if you want to grow up to 10 from there or not. Just buy a little bit here, buy a little bit there over time. Jam Bullion makes it easy. Minimum orders, only 100 bucks, and everything ships free with great pricing and discounts if you spend more than 300 bucks and are an MSB member. So check them out today, jambullion.com. Next up, the other precious metal. There's silver, there's gold. You mean palladium or platinum? No, no, no. Copper jacketed lead. That's right, bulkammo.com. Check them out. Guys, they have everything, especially the common calibers. They got it all. They got great pricing, and their shipping is so stupid fast. You won't even know what to do with yourself. You're like, you're going to hear the door knock, and it's going to be the postman dropping your ammo off. You're going to be like, I just ordered that. I'm telling you. Check them out today. Great pricing. They do a discount for MSB members. And remember, as always, if you have a gun and no ammo, you have an expensive club. That's what you have. It can't do its job as a gun without the ammo. So get on over to bulkammo.com today. And with that, let's go ahead and uh, jump into today's subject Again, we're talking about this from the standpoint of gardens, containers, wicking beds, even big pots. But we're talking about this from the standpoint of growing a garden. And I say vegetables, but this would all apply to an herb garden, a flower garden, anything like that. But this is high-touch systems. This is for zone one if we're in permaculture systems. This is something that we really pay attention to, that we're on top of. This is not four acres you know, out on the back of the property that we're running cattle on. There's, you know, running cattle on that, doing it right away, is a great way to build soil in that type of environment. This is, we want to go fast. We want to go fast. Now, that does not mean that we don't need some patience. It does not mean that your first year will probably not be good as your second. Your soil will be better in your second, and you'll be better in your second, Uh, whether it's your second time ever or your second time at a given particular piece of property, it doesn't matter. But kind of to frame this, the picture for today's episode, if you go by the website, and again, you can get there with a the short URL, tspc.co, uh, you'll see me and a buddy of mine named Sean from uh, Arkansas. It is at my uh, residence that we had in Arkansas. We had it for years as a bug-out location. We lived up there full-time for a couple of years, and we came back to Texas. And you'll see us framing in some boxes and some really crappy-looking soil that's dug up. This is probably the worst place I've ever gardened in my life. It was a horrible place to garden. It really was. Um, it just sucked in, in every way. The soil was incredibly alkaline even compared to here. Um, it, was, it was pretty much rock and inert soil. The place that we were building the garden... As bad as it was, was worse, because if you look at the picture, you can see my house kind of down in the distance, dropped below, and that house is on a plateau. And that plateau was created because they took big machinery, and they pushed a lot of the dirt from where we're standing down into there to make that place to put the house when they put the house in. So there's no topsoil that we're dealing with in this situation whatsoever. And we did wood core gardens, and we will talk about that a little bit today. But... 
by the second year in some of those beds, I grew pepper plants that were as big as me. In a single season, I grew jalapeno pepper plants that were as tall as my head. And when it rained, if I didn't get out there and harvest some, the peppers would get so heavy when they took up the extra water, branches would literally fall off. They would self-prune. And I'd pick up a branch with 30 or 40 jalapenos on it. That's what I mean by fast. I'm not promising you you're going to get those results. There was a lot that went into that. You know, those were my plants and my seed that I had saved for multiple generations and selectively bred. Uh, I knew what I'm doing, etc. But you went from nothing to that that quick. It, it's pretty impressive. And to kind of start out with this, I want to start out with the fast and simple explanation of the soil life web. Now, if there are any of you guys out there that are, you know, fairly involved students or followers of Dr. Elaine Ingham, you're going to say, man, he left a lot out. But I am coming from her place. Like, Elaine Ingham and I do not agree on everything because I don't think we need to be, you know, messing around with a microscope in every situation to try to design soil specifically to grow strawberry unless we're a strawberry farmer. So I think sometimes she makes things too complicated and over needlessly complicated. But I think she's a brilliant person, and I think that when you're a scientist, you tend to go to that extra level. The, the reason I disagree, I don't even disagree, I differ. There's a difference between differing and disagreeing. That for the average person in the backyard, it's too much, it's too much complication, it's not worth it, and you're not going to specialize in growing one or two things. You want to grow a, you know, a, a multi-crop garden, and the solutions are much simpler. So if you are a fan of Elaine Ingham and you're listening to this and you're like, man, is he oversimplifying this? I am. Because I don't think it's necessary for the average gardener to understand this at too high of a level. So what I want you to think back to is when you were a kid in school and they showed you a food web. And like at the top of the food web would be like your top predator, like let's say a grizzly bear. And under that would be something like a deer. And then there would be all these offshoots. But you had this hierarchy, this thing eats this thing that eats this thing that eats this thing, and there's interdependent relationships between them. And I think that we, in our society, we think it's such a, you know, we are the top of everything level that we tend to not really think about anything down on a, on a miniature that mimics the above. Well, the soil food web is exactly like the food web you learned about in school. There are countless organisms that have interdependent and interdependent relationships in the soil. And there are predators and there are prey. And when it comes to the way we look at things, and I'm not necessarily saying this is, this is valid from a natural standpoint, but from the way we look at things, down in that soil web we have what we can think of as mostly good guys and bad guys. We have really beneficial nematodes that do really great things and break up pest cycles for us and are actually predatory and eat bad guys. And we have bad guy nematodes that like go into our vegetables and cause nematode root knot and things like that. Okay? And we have animals we have, and we have uh, fungi and we have basically plankton. I mean, I've always tried to explain it that way. Like, your soil is a lake. And if you take soil and you put it under a microscope... It does look like pond water a lot of times as far as what's in there and what's moving around. So down in there we have the good guys and we have the bad guys. It's not 100%, but the good guys tend to all favor aerobic soil conditions with more fungi. 
and I'm not going to use the word fungi-dominated because people get that way out of whack, but there's a significant quantity of fungi and aerobic soil at work when we have lots and lots of good guys. When we look the other way, we move more toward a bacterial soil. And again, the ratios are not even important. Just say there's not enough fungi and there's too much bacteria relative to the fungi. And a lot of that bacteria being anaerobic, meaning in absence of oxygen. And in that environment, we're always going to have problems. Now, what I want to say today is you're never, there is no magic bullet. I'm going to actually end with a little segment on that so that people don't get frustrated. Because I think when people say, like, well, if you just do this, then you won't have weeds. If you just do this, you won't have problems. It's bullshit. So then when somebody turns around and they have weeds or problems, they think, I must have done something wrong. Sometimes you can do everything right. You still have issues you have to deal with. Okay? So, But in this soil food web, there's all types of little critters. Again, let's not make it technical. Make it simple. And then the plants themselves have a process called the exudate process. Okay? And an exudate is just a little globule that's basically a cake or a cookie is the best way to think about it. It's got some sugar. It's got some carbohydrate, a little bit of fat. But it's a little globule of yummy goodness that it can excrete from its root. And when it does that, some of those soil organisms will come over there to feed off that exudate. We call that an exudate exchange. And that little soil organism, when it yum, 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 eats that and feeds on whatever else it does, it will poop. In that poop will be many of the things that your plants need, but they can't get without that process going on. And this is why in conventional systems where they don't take care of the soil, they seem to have to put so much fertility on the soil in the form of artificial Fertilizers. The amount they use is it's, it, when you actually compare it to a good, balanced, organic system seems ridiculous. It's not. You have to give the plant way more than it needs because it can't get it all. Even in these chemical-based systems, it can't get at all of it. A lot of times, if you go test soil on some of the places where they've just dumped chemical fertilizers, you know, and they'll find the plants are deficient in potassium. The soil's got more potassium, like it's over potassiumed. Plants can't get it because there's not enough biological activity going on. And it's that soil life web that does that. It's all we're going to talk about with that today. We could do a show, we could do a series of shows on nothing but the soil life web. But it isn't necessary. All that's necessary for you to take out of this is there's lots of interrelationships. And without those interrelationships, you can have the nutrient down there that your plants need, but they can't get to it. And if we have lots of biological activity, a very small amount of nutrient. Something that we would even on a test say, well, maybe this is deficient. The plant doesn't show a deficiency because it doesn't need a lot of it and it can get to it. Just think of it that way. Before we go on also, I want to talk about something that's a pet peeve with me. And I think it causes a lot of confusion. It makes people too apprehensive. It makes people get too much of what we call parsley disease in my world. And parsley disease is I give you a recipe for chicken soup. In that recipe is uh, two large handfuls of fresh parsley. And you have everything you need, and you don't have parsley. So you don't make the soup. You sit around trying to figure out where you can possibly get some parsley from on a Sunday when the stores are closed. Instead of just make the soup without the parsley. Or, hey, you know what, let's use the leaves from the celery in place of the parsley. Like, you, you said you just shut down. Or you have dry parsley, but I said to use fresh parsley, and you see what I'm talking about. And this is a metaphor, right? Don't take it literally. But it happens all the time. People, I need more information. I need more. Just go do it. 
So the place this comes up more than any other place that I've seen online causing problems for people is something called the Back to Eden method of gardening. And what I say is that there is no such thing as a Back to Eden method. And that may not be fair to be, okay? Um, to me, the Back to Eden method is only lay down compost, throw wood chips on it, talk about it a whole bunch like it's more than that, and plant shit in there, and yeah, it works. But you can't build a story with that. You can't build marketing with that. right? And this is something that gardeners have been doing since they invented the first wood chipper. When I was eight years old, I remember my grandfather getting a load of wood chips dropped off because he knew the tree trimmer guys and going down to the compost pile and shoveling compost into the, one of those old, you know, shallow metal wheelbarrows that lasted forever that they don't make anymore with the metal wheel on it and spreading the compost out about a half inch to an inch deep on a 25 foot long by four foot bed and then going to get the wood chips and putting the wood chips down. I did that in the 1970s, right? Um, It wasn't called anything. It was called mulch and compost, and that's what it is. So then we take and we spin a religious story into this. And I don't even really care that it's religious. It's just that's what was done with this particular thing. And God told him to do it or whatever. And if you watch the video on this, you'll see the guy say something to the effect of, well, it's amazing. You put wood chips on ground, and when the ground is really dry, the wood chips release moisture And when the ground is really wet, they take moisture up, and somehow they know how to do that. And that's like a God thing. We can't even explain that. Like, oh, it's called osmosis. It's when a solvent moves across a semi-permeable membrane until we have equal, equalization on both sides of it. Right? That's This is the most basic scientific principle. We learn that in junior high school. Maybe we learn it in like fifth or sixth grade if we have a good school. So, like, what happens then is people become cults of these methodologies, And really all they are is a couple techniques thrown together. And then you become loyal to the method. And therefore, if it's not part of the method, then we don't want to do that. And then your problem that could be addressed by this other thing, this other technique, added to your existing techniques, Jeet Kune Do, right, would, would solve your problem. But now it can't solve your problem, and you're sitting there frustrated because I did everything that the method demands. So just take methods and get rid of them. This is why I love permaculture. People come to me and go, explain the difference between permaculture and organic gardening. Okay, permaculture is a design science, and organic gardening is a thing that we use in permaculture. See? So it, it doesn't rule, permaculture rules nothing out unless it harms people, harms the earth, or fails to return the surplus back to a system to make it continue to get stronger and stronger. That's all that permaculture demands. And then we have a system of design. Organic gardening is a piece of that. And organic gardening is a is a, an assemblage of techniques. It's not a method. And so don't get methoditis and don't get celery disease, all right? And then in the end, I want you to do what works for you. If every year you grow a really great garden and you get really great harvest and you're listening to the saying, well, maybe I can improve that. Sure, maybe you can. And maybe it's something like using some of the soil amendments I talk about or something like that. But in the end, if you if what you do works, don't abandon it. Don't worry about anybody that says you're wrong. Keep doing it if it works for you. Um, so I want to tell you what I think makes good soil. I want to be clear. This is my opinion. I am not a soil scientist. I am not a graduate of Dr. Ingham's coursework or any other uh, coursework on soil sciences. I love 
the science of soil, but I don't consider myself a soil scientist, if that makes sense. But when I look at a garden, and I want to determine whether or not I think it's, it's in good shape, and nothing's growing yet, I'm just, all I have to look at is soil. In general, I can tell. And the number, actually what I want to say is, so can you. It's seldom the case that a person looks at soil and thinks it looks really good, and then it doesn't grow anything well at all. It might not grow everything, but it will grow something well beyond weeds, okay? And one of the chief ways we do that is we as human beings, I believe, are innately connected to nature. We are not, it's not like, see, and this is the other problem people have, and this is why we have so much trouble in, in the world today. People look at, well, there's nature, and here's people. And we're separate things. People live in houses. That's not natural. People make roads. That's not natural. And nature's over here, and people and nature are separate. And when we drink a garden, we're trying to drag nature over to us, and we're not part of that. We are, we are the thing that messes it up. No, we are the architect. We're the thing that makes a garden productive to feed a family versus just an assemblage of plants, most of which are inedible by humans. We are a natural piece of this. And building houses, I mean, surely some of them can be done better, but it's a, it's a natural thing we do. We build structures that we live in, just like ants do, just like bees do, just like many other creatures do, just like birds do, just like squirrels do. Squirrels build nests to raise their families in. We are natural, and we are part of nature. We are not separate from nature. doesn't mean we can't be harmful to nature, but elephants in the wrong situation can be harmful to their natural environment. So just because something can be harmful to their environment doesn't mean it's not part of the environment. Now, we have brains and gray matter, and we should do a better job. But to do that, we first must acknowledge we are natural human, we are natural animals. I know some of you don't like that term for humans. We are natural animals. We're in the animal kingdom in this natural collective ecosystem that is Earth. And because of that, we intrinsically know certain things. And with thousands and thousands and thousands of years of some level of cultivation and horticulture in our species, we've developed an eye for pattern recognition. And we can generally look at and feel soil and go, this is good. And you know what I'm talking about. And the number one thing you see there, in addition to color, because dark always seems to mean good, we just know that. Nobody tells you that. You can get a little kid out in the garden and show him like some really light-colored, sandy stuff and some deep, dark loam and say, which one of these looks better? And a little kid, for no reason, doesn't even know why. Just the, He'll pick the one that's long. And a big part of that structure. Structure is the first thing that I want to see in soil. Is it crumbly? Does it, is it in little bits? Is it friable? Can I put my hands in it and move it? Or is it hard and compacted? If we have good structure... We're a long way toward where we want to be. The next is biology. Now, I don't have microscopic lenses implanted into my eyes. I can't look down and see biology at that level. But I can see little things that are moving around in there. I can see worms. I know when I see worms, I've got a good start. Right? And I know when I have structure that the biology is probably right. Because what did I tell you about the soil food web and the biology? That if we have aerobic soil, soil with lots of air in it, we're going to have lots of the good guys. So it's possible to have really good-looking soil without a lot of biology in it. You know, it might have came out of a bag and there's nothing in there. It's just, it's just dirt with the right amendments to make it 
have good structure. And if we don't colonize it, no matter what it's made out of, it'll come back over time. But if it's like that already, then I know there's good biology in there. That doesn't mean it's perfect. It doesn't mean there's not some bad biology in there. But there's good biology in that. Nutrient. I can't really tell that there's nutrient in a soil. You could make a soil that looks perfect. And just by looking at it, you would never know that. But you know as soon as you look at the plants that are growing in it or around it, and by that observation, you can tell if you have a nutrient deficiency. You can look at plants, and I'm not going to get into each individual one of it because it'll take too long, but you can just look at certain colors of the leaf. Where is the, is the discoloration starting at the end of the leaf or at the beginning of the leaf? And with just a little bit of knowledge, you can say, oh, this thing is deficient in iron, or this thing is deficient in calcium, or this is deficient in phosphorus. So we can actually observe that, but... I'm going to go back to if we have good structure and good biology and any nutrient, it's probably good enough for it to build on its own if we just treat it right. Then we need drainage. Good soil doesn't get sopping wet, and when, we do, when it does get wet, it absorbs moisture. There's so many people, they can't figure out why their gardens won't grow right. They water the hell out of it. It's always dried out. Either it drains too fast, or they bought a whole bunch of compost or potting mix or something like that, and it's hydrophobic. They filled their garden beds in with it. They didn't know it was hydrophobic when they did it. They water it, and the water literally sits on the top and evaporates, and it doesn't seep into the soil. Drainage, to me, is drainage and absorbability. So if we have good structure, we're going to have decent drainage. If we have good soil composition, we're going to have decent drainage. Right? But drainage, when I, I'm throwing that in like a lump sum. It's not just the ability of the soil to shed excess water, but to hold sufficient water in my world that I'm describing today. And then you have to have mulch. It can be a living mulch, like a white clover mulch, like a Masanuba Fukuoka style, right? It can be wood chips. It can be leaves. It can be straw. There's tons of different ways that people do this. But if you have bare soil, you're going to have so many problems with developing the structure biology nutrient drainage you want you just are especially in the summer when that sun comes out and starts baking that surface of that soil everything changes when we put a skin on the soil and again i don't even really care what you do to make that happen or what you use to make that happen use what works well for you but think of yourself as being a little soil critter one of the good guys And you are like Goldilocks. You don't want the porridge to be too hot, and you don't want the porridge to be too cold. You don't want it to be too wet, and you don't want it to be too dry. So you're sitting out in your soil, you're doing your job, and the gardener comes out and he waters everything. And it cools down, and it feels good. You start moving around, and you're doing your thing. And then really quickly after that, it starts to get kind of dry. <laughs> kind of dry in here. And the temperature starts going up, 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 and it starts baking you. You're either going to die or run away because you really don't have another choice. And that you're not going to do your thing, right? You're not going to be healthy. You're not going to reproduce. You're not going to make more good guys. You're not going to exchange with the plants. If you're a worm, you're going to go find another place to be. Your worm, if your worms are living in the grass-covered lawn around your garden and not in your garden, This is probably why, so we got to have a mulch. We'll get deeper into this, but that's 
If you look at your soil from that standpoint, I want structure, I want biology, I want nutrients, I want drainage, and I want mulch. And you see to that, you may not have the best garden in the planet, but you're going to be able to find some things that do well in your, your climate for you. And I'll always say that. Find four or five or six things that will just do well for you where you are and make that the core of what you do And then each year try two or three new oddball things or two or three different things or try that, try that thing that didn't work again. And when you do that, you'll slowly build out and you'll have maybe 10 or 12 plants that you know you can consistently get production from. And that's, that's plenty. People go in a grocery store and they get fooled by, mar by marketing. You look around, it looks like there's tons of shit there. But really, what is there? Peppers and cucumbers and celery and carrots and potatoes, right? Spinach and other leafy greens. Beans. Did I say carrots? You know? I'm up to nine there if I didn't say carrots. There's some other things there, maybe some turnips or something like that, but you kind of get my point. Chard, that just falls under leafy greens. We, we, we don't really need that much variety in the stuff that we eat. Now, I want to incorporate flowers and herbs as well. But those are actually easy compared to a lot of our vegetables. So find that core and run with it. So here's my basic method if you have nothing to start with. And I want to kind of key in on that. Let's say that we go out and we pick an area that we wanted to, to garden. We break the sod up or whatever. Um, maybe we just, we just mulched it last fall and we killed all the grass. Put down some cardboard and, and threw some wood mulch on top of it or whatever. And now we're ready to dig it up. And we pull that soil up out of the ground. And instead of being sticky, nasty clay or completely gutless sand, it's pretty good. It's got some structure. It smells good. It drains well. Well, I know I've got biology then. I don't know I've got some base of nutrients. So maybe I don't need to do anywhere near as much as what Jack's going to say. So then I'm going to figure out what I need to do to get what I want out of this. I'm basically saying, you're building soil from scratch because you're filling up a box or a bin or something like that. So you're building up and you're building your own soil. Or you're going in the ground, but the ground is crap. So I'm going to go like, this is like starting with as bad as it gets. Number one, I, I want to make the body of my soil mix that I'm doing compost. It's the easiest, most available, and most efficient thing we can do. So I'm going to start with compost, and I want at least two sources of compost. I don't want a single source. And if you're, if you're looking for how much and what ratios, I'm going to tell you, trust your instincts here. But my other component that I want to use in this as the main base of my soil is going to be just screen topsoil. It's going to be the cheapest thing you can get, good old-fashioned dirt. Because what we would improve dirt with is compost. And I said I'm not going to give you ratios, but you would be okay with a 50-50 mix there. You'd be okay with a 60-40 or 70-30 mix in either direction, depending on the compost, where you can get it, the topsoil, where you can get it, etc. And it will all become black loam in time, like a season, if you do this right. The next thing I'm going to want to do, I want to boost minerals. Most of the compost we're going to get our hands on is going to come from commercial compost factories. And they do, they're in production, they want to do everything fast. It's not going to be heavy in uh, minerals. 
It really is going to be mineral deficient. It is also probably not going to be the heaviest in biological life. It was probably finished a little faster than it should be. It was probably not completely done when they packaged it and kind of shut down the composting practice uh, process. It probably sat around for a while. You know, I mean, there's a lot of things with, with commercial compost. I'll still use it because it's available. But we're mainly getting the structure and a basic NPK ratio and an organic um, matter to start with. And we're going to combine that with topsoil. And I definitely say that over sand. And this is why if you find a materials place that they do soil mixes, you need to look at the components of that soil mix. The one down the road for me, they do some really great stuff, but they make all their soil mixes with basically cushion sand, play sand. So, you know, you can get a, a mix that they call a sandy soil mix, and it's 70% sand and 30% compost. Well, it's sand. So what happens is you put it in a garden bed, and when it rains, the compost floats and the sand sinks and it separates. It doesn't stay incorporated well. So why would you do that to yourself when you control exactly what goes in there? So I would make my own mix based on basically topsoil and compost. Uh, you can use things to lighten and create structure like peat moss. The problem with that is it doesn't last, and peat moss is sterile. So we're trying to create biology, and we're using something sterile to do it. So I, I'm, I'm not big on that, and I think it's an environmental issue as well. Uh, I'm not opposed to peat moss at all uh, you know, in every use, but if I'm building garden beds, I'm probably going to stay away from peat moss uh, because there's other things to do a better job. So now I want to boost my minerals. And I'm going to use a combination of things like rock dust, green sand, lava sand, azermite, etc. to do that. Which ones, which ones can I get? What's available? And what do I need? How do I know what I need? I'm observing the plants. I know what they're deficient in. You know what? If we're using any of that stuff, we're going to get plenty of minerals anyway. Green sand is kind of my... That was the one that I want you to really try to find. Green sand is so mineral rich that if you have green sand anything else is icing on top of the cake rock dust can be really good but you got to be careful where it's coming from what is it you know what does it have what doesn't it have um and uh lava sand i think is great but if you use too much lava sand mixed into the soil it can actually make the soil drain kind of poorly it can get really kind of dense it can get kind of compacted it's a really great soil amendment to put on top of your soil and let the little critters decide how to distribute it, and then we're going to mulch on top of it. Now, this I will give you some guidance on. Um, I'm not big on the whole let's do pounds per square foot or whatever. Everybody's garden beds are shaped differently, longer, shorter, etc. Um, my view is, you know, if I'm doing a 4 by 8 bed, a couple shovelfuls of uh, rock dust is plenty. Probably a bag of green sand spread out, which, you know, a 50-pound bag. Um, lava sand, about the same amount. And you can use, you know, a, a bag of each. And anything else you can get that's that kind of a mineral boost, use what you can. Don't get too upset about it. I'm not big on incorporated into the soil, though. I want to spread it out thin on the top layer of the base mixed soil. Um, and then another thing I'm going to want to do, I want, and so I should have put these in a better order because this kind of goes into your base soil mix here. But you want to aid moisture retention and drainage. Because you've got this, like, if you buy screen topsoil, you're going to get this inert dirt. It's almost going to look like sand. You know, it looks like very brown sand, very fine particle dust. Uh, and then you've got this compost, and that's great, but you kind of need something that gives you some lift and some body. My favorite thing to do that with is expanded shale. That I mean, that's my absolute favorite thing to do it with. 
But here's my problem when I give you, like, I would use expanded shale. Well, I can't get expanded shale. Now you have parsley disease. And because I said expanded shale, you need – no, you don't. Um, I would not use perlite simply because it's going to float. But if you wanted to build structure into that soil and, you know, create some moisture retention and drainage, then go out and get leaves, And the best thing to do would make a big, super huge pile of, like, especially oak leaves are great because they get oak, oak, oak leaf mold on, and that's a great soil amendment. Just pile them up for, you know, the winter. And then put them into your soil. Mix them in. Don't mix wood chips and you make concrete. Mix leaves in. You, if you didn't get any last year and you don't now, you just have to use what you have, throw it in there. Take your lawnmower, run it over, chop it up. Put chopped up leaves in the soil. You're golden. Feed the microorganisms and build some structure and moisture retention. So use what you can. But uh, expanded shale, you know, again, ratios are not a big thing with me. I do everything kind of by eye. But if you were if you were mixing a wheelbarrow and it was like half compost and half um, screen topsoil, and maybe you threw a little bit of lava sand in there, even though I said to put most of it on the surface, you know, then with your um, To a wheelbarrow full, your your expanded shell, you probably use like two shovelfuls, maybe three. And then once we get the garden bed down, we can only sprinkle some, like we're like we're decorating a cookie. You just make this simple. I mean, when man was doing this, is is like you know native hunter gatherer horticulturists. They didn't have ratios for everything. Said, oh, this stuff works. So throw some of that on there. All right. Um, and another thing is. You can definitely use your native topsoil if you, if you have it available. So make sure that um, if you have soil available, like they can use it. Or if you are building garden beds where we're not really like building up much, we're just maybe we put out you know a four inch or six inch raised bed. We get a lot just by turning that soil. We're going to lighten things and build it up and turn that compost in. We don't have to bring topsoil in if the soil we ha we can work with is good and it can be clay based it can be sand based it can be whatever so don't you don't always have to bring in screen topsoil when i say screen topsoil what i'm talking about is i'm filling up a, a raised bed that's a foot deep and i just don't have otherwise it would just be all compost right or i'm doing a wicking bed and i have to fill two foot deep a giant two foot deep container I don't want to just put compost in there. I want to put some sort of a soil in there with it. Um, next, I want to add biology. And I'm going to add biology primarily by adding worms, whether I have a place I can just get them or whether I buy them or whatever, but I want worms in that soil. I want fungi in that soil, and I want food in that soil. I want to bring the dinner bell for all of my biological life. So let's talk about worms are simple. If you know where you can get worms, get worms, throw them in. And, you know, when I was a kid in Pennsylvania, we never bought a worm to go fishing with my life. Every time it rained, I would go out at night with a coffee can and a flashlight and pull worms. If, if I had worms like that on this property, and I don't, um, but if I did the way we had it up there, And I had a big old raised bed, or I had a you know uh, a, a container garden of any kind, a wicking bed, whatever, where worms really just can't climb into it. When it rained, I would go out with my coffee can again, like when I was a kid, pull a couple dozen worms and just dump them in there. They'll live in there. They'll be happy. They'll probably be happier, less likely to be eaten by a robin, right? So 
One way or another, get worms. Mr. Jim's Worm Farm, great place to get worms. Fungi. I am going to give you my products that I use in a minute, and I definitely have a fungi product. And I have a couple different products you can buy to put more fungus into your soil. But there's a lot that can be done by whenever you take a walk somewhere in the woods, if you see some kind of fungus-ridden, uh, rotting wood, You know, pick a bucket up of it and bring it home and build a rotting wood fungus pile and just keep adding to it. Throw leaves on it and shit and then, you know, let it break down. Don't treat it like compost. Let it do a fungal breakdown. Just keep it relatively uh, shaded and, every, you know, if it, if it starts to get really dry, throw a little water on it and just let it be. And when you go to, to inoculate your soil, just go into that pile and just crumble it. Because find the pieces that will just break in your hands at that point. Crumble that up and mix it in your soil. There's all kinds of fungi in there. And it's indigenous fungi to your, your biome. So that's one way to get fungi without spending any money at all. Um, leaf mold, again, in, in, even if you're not using the leaves directly as a soil amendment, you know, don't, don't compost every leaf that you can get your hands on. Make some big just piles of leaves and keep them dry, keep them, not dry, keep them in a moist, shaded environment. And you'll find over time that when you pull that back, you'll find clear evidence of fungi growing in there. Pull some of that out. Add that to your soil. Inoculate it. Again, it's, free, it's a free fungal inoculation. And then you can use some of the products I talked about as well. And then food. And we've talked about this a lot lately, but old chicken feed, old sweet feed, Anything like that. The only thing I wouldn't use is like old scratch because some of the, the stuff in it might be, you know, still viable and start growing stuff that you don't want in your garden. And so we're going to feed, we're going to feed the, the soil organisms. And this is where I differ with Elaine Ingham. She says no molasses. Bullshit. Uh, I tend to use liquid molasses and I tend to use dry horticultural molasses as well. I, and, and how much? Take a cup full of dry molasses and I sprinkle it. Just like I was salting it, like it's a it's it's a it's a plate of food, about like that. And for the uh, wet molasses, I'll mix it up by the instructions to the gallon, and just soak everything with it one time, right before we go ahead and mulch it. Um, then we're going to continue to incorporate organic matter over time. Again, this is you know semi composted leaves, wood chips, whatever. And then we're going, so that's, that's the stuff that's little and scattered, that's in different stages of breakdown, and we're going to come up with some kind of mulch, and we're going to keep it mulched. As complicated as people can make this, if you do those things there, you will figure out everything else over time. And you will have a great result in time. I'll give you the products now that I use and why I use them and how they can help with all of these things. And we'll keep referencing back to what we want to do, which is structure, biology, nutrients, drainage, and mulch. And talking about our nutrient from the standpoint of minerals and from NPK, our biology, our fungi, our food, how all of these interplay with that. So first of all, everything that I said about the soil web is true. And if we have enough biological activity, your plants can get by on very little nutrient. That's true. But you have to think about the organic life in your soil, the little critters, the good guys and the bad guys, as not being on-off, like an on-off switch. We think, of the, we think very binary as humans, ones and zeros. That's how we program the entire world, ones and zeros. But 
the soil life is more like something on a dimmer switch. And as you go through the seasonality of the year, as it gets colder and colder, they get slower and slower and slower, and they kind of go to sleep and go dormant. Or even if they're active, they're so minorly active, they can't really do the things your plants need. So then we come along the spring, and we, we have done everything Jack said and everything everybody said, and we have this beautiful soil, and we put this plant in it, and it's warm enough that the plant should be able to do fine and start growing, and the plant's just like, nah, I don't really feel good about life. I think I'll get a yellow leaf and be miserable and make my gardener miserable, and yeah, that's what I'm going to do for a while. And oh, Since I'm a little bit depressed here, that little yellow leaf is going to start to get a fungus on it, and I don't have enough nutrient to fight that fungus off. And uh, Then all of a sudden, the biology kicks in, but the plant's stunted. It, you, know, you end up ripping it. It's just easier to rip it out. Go down the garden center, buy a new plant, and stick it in there that's healthy. And then that one takes off, and you're like, what the hell? Okay, your biological little guys down there in your soil were kind of sleepy. It's cold out yet. So we have a couple ways we can deal with that. One is we can warm the soil up. We can take and build, like, temporary greenhouses. We can build cloches. We can put down black plastic. I mean, there's a lot of things we can do to warm that soil up faster. But kind of the shortcut is to just make sure the plants do get what they need from a mineral and NPK uh, standpoint. If they at least get that, they'll do okay until the biology kicks in, and then they really take off. And that way, when we put them out early, as long as they were getting a little bit bigger and growing their root system, it's worth putting them out early. If they don't do that, you'd have been better off not starting your own plants or starting them a little later and letting the, the guy at the nursery take care of them for you until the soil was warm. Right? The only reason we do that that early is to get a kickstart. If we don't get a kickstart, hey. So either we need to grow cold-weather vegetables or we need to make sure that we give the plants what they need early on. And that's why I believe a solid, balanced NPK organic fertilizer is the way to go. Something that's already in a form where with limited biological activity, that plant can still get it. My go-to on that is Dr. Earth Premium Gold 444. Guys that listen to this show a long time know I've been recommending it for like four years because that's about how long ago I found it. Once I found it, I fell in love with it. I don't have time to completely go into it today, but it is packed and loaded beyond the NPK with beneficial uh, fungi and colonizing bacteria. So it is also a biological component to the program. And the new one is the one I just announced that we have for the MSB yesterday, Fish Newer, which is composted catfish manure. It's composted with oat straw, and it's it's bond with clay. And this stuff seems fantastic, and it's primarily a biological boost and a mineral boost. So those two are now my core recommendations for your fertilizer, and I recommend them early on and then through the season, and we'll talk about schedules here in a minute. Next, we I want to talk about drenches and teas. So we can drench, and we can also do what's called foliar feed, and we can uh, do this with compost teas and other things. My two go-tos for this, number one is Garrett Juice um, Plus, which basically is the standard Garrett Juice, and it's also got some fish in it, and it's got some beneficial microorganisms in it. So Galvar, almost everything we're doing in some way is contributing to the microbiological activity, because that's the most important thing. So the beauty of something like a Garrett juice is we can look at a plant 
And it's just not, we gave it a good fertilizer, we got soil, we got structure, we got biology. It's just not, it's just not doing it. It's just weak. It's a little sick. It's like a baby that maybe we need to give it a special formula for a little while and then it'll take off. So if we use a foliar feed, which, which compost teas and, and other types of foliar feeds are, we put the, the, we, we spray the leaf with it. And the plant can take it right in through the leaf. And we want to do that in the evening when there's going to be no more heavy sun on the plant. We don't want it to dry off real fast. We don't want it to burn the plant. We want to have the plant have the time to take it in. So we can hit that plant or that group of plants. We can do it twice in a week. We can do it three times in a week if we're having a problem. And, and we will probably see that problem go away if we, if we take that approach. Additionally, when we, when we use these compost teas and things like this, we're adding fertility to the soil and we do them as a soak or a drench, and we're creating more biological activity. Um, my other kind of liquid component to this is liquid kelp. And I use a, a product from uh, GS Plant Foods, liquid kelp, and I really don't care where you get your liquid kelp from, but I'll, I'll have links to all of these in the show notes today. In my notes, you'll see the product, and you'll see right next to it, it'll say link, and you can see exactly what I'm talking about. So liquid kelp is primarily a mineral supplement. So when we look at those four items, the Dr. Earth, the fish newer, the garret juice, and the liquid kelp, we are just giving that plant a spoiled condition. It's got all the NPK it could ever need. It's got all the micro and trace elements that it could ever need. It's got all the minerals. The, the liquid kelp is just rich in sea minerals. They're immediately bioavailable. We can throw a tablespoon of that into a one-gallon um, uh, sprayer with a couple of glugs. And I don't even measure it. It tells you on the bottle what to do, but I'm like, glug, glug, that's enough Garrett juice. About a tablespoon of liquid kelp, which is gloop. Don't you actually measure it. Mix that up and spray the plant with that, and it's just going straight into that plant system. And when we get down to where we've sprayed everything, we can open the sprayer and we can just pour it around the base of those plants and let it be a, a soil drench. And we're just giving everything to the plants that they could ever want. Next, uh, we're going to supply some specific minerals if we need to. Now, there are, there are dozens of minerals that plants use and need and interact with, but there are four that, in my experience, are most likely to become deficient in gardens. And there's a lot of different reasons. Some of them, there could be a butt-ton of them in the soil, but even with your biological activity up, Maybe due to the type of water that you have available, whatever, they, they, they're not, the plants really have a hard time taking them in. And those are calcium and magnesium and iron and zinc. I generally do not use the two supplements I'm about to give you as a regular thing. A lot of times when I plant my garden early in the season, I will give a single application of them right when I plant them. Because again, I know the biological activity is low when the soil's cold. But if that plant doesn't show any deficiencies, then I don't do it again till next year when I plant the next garden. Okay, so this is not an ongoing thing. But if I look at a plant and go, eh, it looks a little bit like a calcium deficiency, I run and get my CalMag supplement, and I give it that, and I observe it. And if it goes away, then I know I was right. If it gets worse, I look at it and try to figure out, well, was I wrong? But here's what I use. I use a product called um, Hydro Organics Cal and Mag. And when you supplement calcium or magnesium, you always want to also supplement the other. The plant 
doesn't matter how much biological activity is going on. If magnesium is deficient, it can't use the calcium. And if calcium is deficient, it can't use the magnesium. They, that's why you'll see them constantly in these products as twins. And then for iron, I use a product called Liquinox 3032 Iron and Zinc, and it's a chelated solution, which basically just means that when you give that plant that product, it can use it instantly. Both of those products, you just use them according to the label. You can use them as a soil drench. You can use them in a spray to spray your plants. The way I generally apply them on that first thing is I'll get my plants in the ground, and I'll talk about how I do planting here in a minute. And then I give the plants a little while in the ground to kind of get their feet underneath them, so to speak, get those little roots starting to go. And then I will do a soil drench with garret juice, and I will add the cow mag and the iron to it just that first time. And then I'll come back maybe a week later and I will spray them with a, a supplemental foliar feed where I will also include about a half dose of the cow mag and iron zinc. And then I will put them away. And I, you know, I have some I've been using for four seasons now. It doesn't break down. It doesn't go away. It doesn't go bad. I just wouldn't leave it out in the sun. And, I, you know, so a couple bottles of this stuff can last you multiple seasons. But whenever I see a deficiency that looks like a mineral deficiency, even if I think it's calcium, I just give it all four. I just give it all four, and I give it a shot of fertility. And once that plant really establishes itself, if you've taken care of the soil, it's going to take off. These are little crutches to get by early on. And then I, I'm big on it makes sense every season to add some more minerals and do that with green sand, lava sand, rock dust. And once you've got your stuff established, you don't need a lot. You know, you can take a five-gallon bucket and, and, and mix it up with, like, half green sand, half lava sand, and some rock dust, or just half green sand and half lava sand, and use that almost like a really light fertilizer when you when you go to do your, your, your bed prep. So let's say we're in our second season now, and we've got mulch on top of the garden or whatever. Well, before we plant, we're going to pull all that mulch back, and we're going to add our, our, you know, our, our beginning season Dr. Earth, fish newer, whatever organic fertilizer we're using, add some compost, etc. Take that bucket and just, again, sprinkle that stuff out like sugar on a cookie. And that one bucket could do your garden, you know, for a, depending on how big your garden is, a season or five seasons. It's, 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 the green sand is millions of years old, so is the lava sand. It's not going to go bad. But just by constantly throwing some sort of additional mineral in there, you're going to keep giving those organisms things to break down. And keep building. Uh, and then I want to do a fungal boost. Now I talked about how you can do a fungal boost. And you can do all different, you know, basically you can grow any kind of fungus. And add it to your soil and it will be good as long as you're growing an aerobic fungus. Right? It's anaerobic funguses that cause all of the problems. Now people are going to say, well, there's these fungal spot diseases and stuff like that. Yeah, if you're, if you're breaking down wood with a fungus, it's not a fungus that's going to hurt your tomato. Okay? If you're breaking down leaves with a fungus, it's not a, you know, dead leaves with a, fungal, fung, fungi that grow on dead leaves generally do not grow on live leaves. They're, they, the fungi of the world are specialists. So you can do that. But two ways to really boost things is to use a, a, a mycorrhizal fungal inoculation product. I use a product called Endo Mycorrhizal Fungal Inoculation. Um, a bag of that can last you a full season. I'll tell you, I use that in a minute. And I use uh, mushroom spawn. 
Now, I have given up on ever growing a mushroom. If it happens someday, fine. And I've had, I say, oh, mushroom. I've had a mushroom pop up here and there. Um, but I buy because someday it might work and actually grow me a mushroom. King's Trevoria mushroom spawn on sawdust. I get it from a place called Mushroom Mountain. You get a big old bag of it, and all I do is take crumbles of it, and I put it on top of the soil, and that's the last thing that happens before the mulch goes down, and it colonizes the mulch. And even though I don't get a lot of fungi, you pull the wood mulch back, and you can see all of the, 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 the fungal strands from the, the mushrooms. And it looks different than the mycorrhizal soil fungi that you get from that inoculation. You do those things. Again, we, we focus on that structure and the biology and the drainage. We use these products for what they're great for, and we're in really good condition. And what I want to talk about now, though, is how I plant a plant. So when I put a plant in a bed, this is what I do using the products that I'm talking about. I pull back my mulch. If I have compost on hand, and I almost always do, take a little small handful of compost, and I, I, I actually I dig the hole for the plant. I take a handful of compost, I throw it in the hole. I take a pinch of Dr. Earth, and now I'll be using the fish newer as well, and I throw it in the hole. And I reach down in there and I mix that up. I pop the plant in and I push the dirt back around it. I take another pinch of my fertilizer or fertilizers, whatever they are, and I sprinkle them around the plant. And then I push kind of the mulch back around and I don't push the mulch right up on the stem of the plant. I leave a little ring around the plant where, yes, the soil's exposed. It'll be okay. It's not going to stay that way for very long. And I water the plant in. And it wouldn't hurt to start right off and water that plant in with the Garrett juice. And if you want to add the CalMag and the iron, go ahead and do that too. And I take care of that plant until it starts to establish. And then I go on from there. And, and what we've done now, we've, we've, we've put, oh, I'm sorry, and I left one thing out. And I take a little bit of the endomycorrhizal fungi and I put that in as well. And what I'll usually do with that, I'll get a cup like a red solo cup, like a party cup for, for a, a kegger party. And I'll put a couple tablespoons of that fungal inoculation powder. It looks like a little white powder in that cup. And I'll take the plant and I'll take some of the dirt off, tease the roots a little bit. And I just take the plant and I put it down in the cup. And because the plant's moist, you obviously don't want to be planting a dried out plant. Some of that powder will stick right on the roots and put that in there. And that means when those, that, that fungal bacteria I mean, that fungal uh, inoculation takes off. It's in a nice, moist, happy environment. Now, gee, I'm ready to do my thing. It's already touching the roots of the plant, and it will attach to those roots, and then it will colonize through the soil. And effectively, it becomes a root extension of your plant. So it can increase the mat, the, the, technically the root mass of your plants by 50, 100, 200, 300%. It depends. You get enough going through the soil, basically the whole thing becomes a single network. And those fungi will help the biological critters do the exchanges with the plants. But they will also say, I need some stuff from you, plant. The plant goes, I got plenty, man. And the fungi are like, what do you want? I want water. Shit, we're like a root structure. Here's some extra moisture. And they'll hold extra moisture in your soil as well. So that's how, I mean, I'm putting that plant into a completely spoiled condition. And I, I, I explained this years ago on an episode, uh, maybe not to the level I'm doing today. And the guy wrote me, he said, it doesn't even seem fair. It's like you're cheating. Well, I'm not trying to be fair. I'm not farming 80 acres of corn. I can spoil my plants. 
and they'll swallow me back in their production. So let's talk about a few other things. Cover crops, till versus no-till, etc. Um, I think cover crops are a great idea if you're going to do whatever it is that you need to do to make that particular cover crop work. And you need to think about what you're using as a cover crop. If you use something like white Caius oat as a cover crop, it's a wonderful cover crop. It will produce just a metric ass ton of organic matter, huge roots. Nothing else will grow over the winter if you have Caius oat growing in your garden. But if you do Caius oat, you're going to dig and till and chop and, 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 and reincorporate that organic matter, or you ain't going to be able to plant into it. Because if you grab a hold of a big clump of Caius oat and you pull it out of the ground, it'll have a root structure like nothing you've ever seen before. So if you're going to do that particular cover crop, then you're going to till your garden. Tillers are evil. I don't like tillers, but tillers have a place. Plenty of people have great results using tillers. The problem we get with tillers is they can compact the hard pan below what you've cultivated. So as that tiller blade goes around and around and around and chops everything up, okay, It's pushing the soil down, and at the edge that it can reach, it's compacting the soil. But it comes back really, really quick. And again, since we're not talking about a 40-acre field, we're talking about garden beds, yeah, we'll chop up some worms, and we'll, we'll kind of be growing on the dead microsoil organisms that we killed when we ran that tiller, but they'll come right back out of your surrounding pathways and go back in there, and you'll be in great shape right away anyway. Remember, they were all dead and asleep anyway when you did it early in the season. Now, I'm not saying you should do that. I'm saying this is the reality if you do that. Most cover crops, if you're going to cover crop, you're going to have to do something to kill that crop when you plant. Or you're going to have to use a permanent perennial crop like white clover. White clover is great. It didn't work for me here, but if it works for you where you are, fine. That means we're basically going to grow a garden bed And we're going to completely seed it with white clover until we carpet it like a lawn. Anything we see in there that's not clover, we're going to pull it out. Eventually, the clover is going to choke everything else out, at least anything that doesn't grow taller than it. And then when we're going to plant our tomato plant or our pepper plant, and we're going to use Jack's method I just gave you, we're going to go in and we're going to pull clover out until we have a bare patch of ground, pull back the soil, tuck that little plant in that spoiled condition, Maybe throw a little handful of wood chips around it, maybe even inoculated wood chips, to keep the clover back long enough that plant grows up. Once that pepper plant is 8, 10 inches tall, that clover can grow right up to it. It ain't going to hurt it. They occupy different soil layers as far as the root zones. Clover's really shallow-rooted. You know, the, 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 the pepper plant's going to be deep-rooted. They need different things from the soil. They'll exchange things with each other. If Masanoba Fukuoka said when he was alive that it works, promise you it works. He ain't wrong. That's another way we can do it. But you have to think about it. Weed blocking fabric, plastic, etc. I absolutely see the use for it. Uh, Curtis Stone with his spin farming uses it all the time. It's an incredible labor saver. Just, you know, that little package that says it's going to last 25 years. It's not. It's not going to block 100% of the weeds. And you are the best weed control that you will ever have. If you're mining your garden, you should never get overrun with weeds. Especially this typical garden that people grow for a kitchen garden. It's actually not much work. What happens is we forget about doing it for three weeks, and then it becomes a problem. Okay. Um, next, I kind of already said this for you. Grow what does well for you. Okay. Stay on the weeds. You are the best weed control. The best way you can handle this is you go out there every day, and you look at your garden, and you look for weeds. 
like a terminating robot. You must die. And you yank the weed out, and you just flip it upside down so the roots are exposed and throw it right on top of the mulch and let it die and let things eat it. Or, you know, I mean, honestly, there's some weeds that are not that big of a problem in my garden that I know, like, my chickens or ducks will eat. And I'll see that weed, and I'll go, that eh, weed's not ready to harvest yet. And, uh, you know, I'll be like, Saturday I'll come out here, and I'll pull them all out, throw them in a bucket, and throw them in the compost for the chickens. So if you do that, now, how big's your garden? When I was a kid in Pennsylvania, the garden I tended for my grandfather was almost a quarter acre. Now, I want a quarter acre of grow bed because we had paths between the beds, but it was almost a quarter acre. That was a lot to keep up with on weeding. Fortunately, he had you know, done good practices for a long time, and we didn't have a lot of weed problems. And if, again, if you're growing, you know, a lot of things that you're growing, once they're up, weeds aren't that big of a deal. Tomato plant doesn't care that some weeds are on its base. You know, unless you're talking about perennial woody weeds, it's just not that big a deal. I guess the one thing I left out of my notes I should cover real quick before I move on to all the stuff from social media. Um, direct sow. And this one a matter of, well, what are we direct sowing? And let's say we're direct sowing cucumbers. And we're going to, you know, dig a little hole, put about three seeds in there, and, then, you know, space that out to the next set of vines. Okay, then we're going to just pull, we're going to do just like we did a, a potted plant. You know, but we're just going to not really push all the mulch back over. We'll put a little scattering of the mulch. A lot of times people say, well, if I have the mulch there, how's the, the seed going to get through it? Okay, it can get through the dirt. It can get through the wood chips or the straw, right? But we'll pull back a little bit. We really, when we direct sow, that we got to keep the soil wet until that plant at least gets some roots down a little bit. Because if you put a seed a half inch deep in the soil and it's nice and wet and it starts to grow... But before it gets its roots down, that top half inch of soil dries out, the seed dies, you get no plant. Or if it gets its root down a little bit, you get a very sick plant, and you're, you end up like plants a week old. It would be better if you just yanked it out or planted a new one. If you're not sure about that, if you ever get a plant, should I just yank this out and plant a new one, or should I let it go? Plant another seed. Plant another seed, and if one of them starts to take off before the other, kill the other one and be done with it. If you're planting something that you're going to plant a row of, like let's say peas, beans, etc. that we're going to direct sow. Then what we're going to do, we'll take a hoe, or you can use a 2x4 and just kind of move it back and forth, but basically clear a long row of mulch. Then use the, either the hoe, the board, whatever, to dig into the soil and make a furrow. Space your seeds out. Cover it with soil. Cover it with as much soil as what you need to. If it's a bean, it can be pretty deep. If it's a carrot, it needs to be barely covered. Again, you got to keep the soil moist until the plants start growing. Once the plants come up high enough level, push the mulch back around them and move on with your life. It is that easy. I guess I should talk about watering as well. If you can automate watering, do it. The biggest mistake that people make with their gardens is watering too much. If your soil is too wet, that's not good. That said, if you live in a hot climate and you go out and your plants are really miserable and you can water the ground without getting the plants all wet, and it makes the plants come back, do it. This shit about, well, don't water that, no. <laughs> and the older the plants get, the deeper their roots go, the less they'll be dependent on the watering. So you may have to water more at the beginning of the season than you do in the middle of the season when you think you have to do more. But definitely try to automate your watering in a good environment. Watering every other day should be all you need to do. 
That said, I mean, in this climate here in Texas, there's summers where it's really dry and really hot, and even when you have good soil, you have to water almost every day. So you figure that out, but the more you can keep the water on the soil and not on the plants, the better. If you have mulch, you won't have to water as much, so you should have mulch. Okay, with that, let's talk about social media. Um, this one I almost didn't do at all because it's not really what we're talking about today because this is a pest question that's not really soil-based. Dealing with squash bugs and groundhogs. Groundhogs, the best way to deal with a groundhog is to shoot it. Again, this is another one of those that said. I mean, we had groundhogs everywhere in Pennsylvania. Never had one go in our garden. I don't know why people have that problem when we never did. But groundhogs are good in a pressure cooker and then thrown on the grill. Just going to say that. Squash bugs. I'm going to admit it. Like, so this is part of the, the reason I did include this. There are people that will say, well, if you have your soil right, you don't have to worry about weeds. Weeds won't grow. You don't have to worry about pests. If you have a good environment and lots of predators are around, you don't have to worry about pests. There are no pests. There's just misunderstood bugs. And if you have all of that right, even when the pests come, some other bug will come and will eat it. I don't know anything of these squash bugs. I know a chicken won't. I saw a chicken eat one one time, and it ran away making a horrible noise in chicken language. But I think what it was saying is, no, no, God, no, 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 God, no, never again. I mean, that's how that chicken reacted to it. It must burn or something. So squash bugs, man, the only thing that I've been told that works, and I've seen work to a degree with squash bugs or vine borers, is catnip. Plant catnip near your squash plants. Plant your catnip early. Get it nice and big, and when your squash really starts to take off by the time the squash bugs show up, take a, a rice knife or, or whatever and cut a big old swath off of your catnip and wrap it right around your squash plant. Apparently, it is quite repellent to squash bugs and squash vine borers. The other solution to squash bugs and vine borers is plant lots of squash. That's what I do here. I plant zucchini. I don't even put it in the garden beds. I have this long, it's called a stand-in plant. It basically looks like a PVC pipe, but it's not. It's like a molded uh, formed tool. And it basically, you stick it in the ground, and it's got a little handle you squeeze, and it makes a little thing like a bird's beak open and close. And you drop a seed down it, and you click it, and you pull it out, and then that seed's planted. I'll go plant two packages of squash seeds. Four or five of those plants will do really well and beat the squash vine borers. And squash vine borers seem to like to kill a plant, but squash plantations don't really have a problem with them because they grow lots of squash. So those are my only two choices there. My big thing is you can have problems even if you do everything right, and then you have to address those problems. Um, and you got to figure out, you know, my, my buddy David just said, I'm not doing it anymore. Squash is cheap. I'm not growing it. It's not worth, it. my, it's not worth my time. I'm not going through all this crap, and I understand. Um, somebody wanted to know kind of what is the best medium What is the best way to get started for a beginner? Aquaponics, wicking beds, self-watering gardens. See, this is the thing. It's not about whether you're a beginner, experienced, intermediate. That's irrelevant to your situation. These different methods that we use are more specific to our individual needs and our climate types and our ground reality. I live where most of my area is four inches of dirt on top of limestone slab. So I do a lot with wicking beds, self-watering gardens, call them whatever you want to, tied into aquaponics, or just you fill it up once a week with a garden hose, or you have a, pl a plumb valve. That I do that not because I'm experienced or because I'm not experienced. I do that because of the reality on the ground. Aquaponics is not simple. It is complicated. It is fiddly. It is probably not where I would recommend somebody start. 
especially with kind of an ebb and flow or whatever. I would tell you the easier path to do if you want to grow vegetables is hydroponics because it's a well-established discipline. There's the exact uh, fertilizers and things like that you need to be able to to be able to, to, to grow and you don't have to worry about killing fish. So if you were going to just like you just wanted to grow vegetables and you you know for some reason or can't do soil based, I would I would start with hydro or fishless aquaponics because then if you're iron deficient, you just dump some iron in there and you don't worry about doing too much and hurting your fish. I would say that the best thing to do from an economic return and least amount of work standpoint is grow in the soil. Put a garden bed in. Whether it's a raised bed or lowered bed, it doesn't matter. But that's your that's your easiest bang for the buck. But if you live somewhere with really crappy soil and design restrictions and growth restrictions that just is it makes your life miserable, then getting very large containers and building self watering gardens makes a lot of sense or doing bucket gardening or whatever. But okay, now let's say you take you get some IBCs. You don't do aquaponics. You just cut them in half. And you flip them over so that you have two really big pots. You fill that with soil. You have to bring a lot of material to fill just two of those. So if you put ten of them in, it's a lot of dirt. There's an expense there. There was an expense to them. And now you've got them in this container above ground. So now you have less thermal control. So now maybe you want to put some kind of facade around them to keep them shaded. Right? Uh, and then we're going to figure out some way to water. This might be the best thing you can do. My buddy David, who I just mentioned, he does a lot with containers like that. He uses his pond, which is a swimming pool he turned into a pond. And he's doing basically aquatics and using the water from the pond more as irrigation than true aquaponics because it's a you know, 12,000, 18,000 gallon pond. Um, and his whole backyard is basically no dirt. It's all pool deck. Right? It's all it's all poured concrete. There's no place to put a garden in the ground. So that's the best solution he has. His front yard is all shaded. No sun gets there. So it there's no other choice for him. Me, I can force it in the ground, but I got ducks, then I gotta fence it. But both of us, when we take these large energy embodiments, which is what a container is, we have a lot of work to get that thing to pay back to where it's produced enough vegetables that it's it's now offset in cost and everything's profitable in our out of that system from that point forward. We've paid back the energy debt and the and the financial debt to it. But we get there. But there's no way I can I can financially compete on ROI with somebody that has good enough soil to just dig a bed and plant into it. That is the way to go. That's how mankind did it for most of our civilization and even before what we call modern civilization. That's how man grew. And there's a reason it works. Um, someone asked how, you know, what have I learned about wood core beds? How well do they work? What have you? The only reason I'm not doing a lot with it anymore is because I'm doing so much with containers. Pretty much all my annual productions in containers now because it just works better for my environment. Um, they work incredible. Wood core beds work incredible. I refuse, I don't care what Paul Wheaton says, I refuse to call it Hugel culture. Hugel culture means hill culture. That's what the word actually means in German. It just so happens that a well-established technique when you build these big hills to grow shit on is to take a whole bunch of wood debris and put it in the core. And that does a lot of wonderful things. The gardens that I'm talking about from Arkansas, 
I had a buddy with an excavator come in and help me do that, thank God, because I could have never done it with a shovel. It was just awful environment. And we dug as deep as we could till we hit this granite rock base. And I got tons of wood from the woods. It was all partially broken down. And we probably, by the time you counted the boxes building up, you know, had about three foot to work with. And I filled it about two with wood. And since we had an excavator, he took the bucket and smashed it down. So it wasn't real bushy. So we, we filled that with that. And then I went to, we had a compost facility, city compost facility, where they composted the sewer solids and, and all of the stuff that, that landscapers would drop off. It was a place where landscapers could get rid of all their crap for free. And yeah, there's probably not, you know, there's probably some issues with that compost, but it was free, and biology over time fixes all. So I just would go there with my truck, and I would get a shovel. I would load my truck. I'd back it up to one of these beds, and I filled it with nothing but compost. Didn't do any of the shit that I talked about today. Once I got them full, I mulched them. The first year, they did okay. The second season, it was on. That's where I had those you know, jalapenos that were as big as me. Liter I mean, literally as big as me. And I believe a huge part of that was that wood core. But I think the main thing the wood core does, there was so much on this when we first discovered it, we talked about how it reduces the need for irrigation. I think it does. We talked about how it wicks moisture from below to above. I think it does some. I think the main thing it does is it causes a huge fungal activity in the bed. That is the main reason that it works. And that does so much for irrigation requirements and irrigation needs. But I don't care. You can build all the hoog culture you want. If you think you're going to build a hoogal mound in North Texas, in our summer, and you're going to not water that thing, and you're going to grow annuals in it, they're all going to die. They're not going to make it through our summer. I don't give a shit what anybody says. Uh, now, there's certain perennials you could grow in there, but you are not, it's not happening. So, wood core works, but it only does so much, and I think mainly it's a good fungal hit. That's it. If I was building raised beds in the ground, and I could dig down a foot or two, I would definitely put wood material down there. Absolutely. Um, solarizing to kill weeds and weed seeds. I see a lot of people talking about putting black tarps down to do this. Black tarps warm the soil. That's a great thing to do. You know, Maybe you do it two or three weeks before you plant, and then your soil under there will have started to become a thermal battery and got nice and warm when you plant. So you pull your tarp off, you put your mulch on, and you plant, and your plants will take off faster, sure. If you want to solarize, and I've never done it, But to me, the way to do it is you cover your beds with clear plastic, like painter's plastic. Maybe two layers in case you get rips or whatever. Uh, weight it down and give it at least two to three weeks. And you might knock back your weeds. The way that I've heard people do it successfully is they do that for an entire season. And I think that you're better off being your own best weed control than doing that because you can do that and, and somewhere down deep in that soil are some seeds that survived and as soon as you take it off nature's going to blow seeds and things like that realize that in a square foot of soil we'll say a, a, a cubic foot of soil so we go 12 by 12 by 12 cube and we pull that out of the ground there's probably tens of thousands of seeds in any cubic foot of soil in the world even in the desert some of them dead Some of them long dead, some of them inert, but a whole lot of them are viable. 
And you might wonder then, well, then why, why aren't so many of them growing? Why don't they don't go? Well, a lot of them that are seeds that are self-propagating plants have what are called germination triggers. There's something that has to happen to cause that plant to germinate. A certain temperature swing, uh, a certain moisture level, a certain temperature. But the number one thing is a soil disturbance. And there are seeds that literally, if you if you just took a compactor, you know, like when people do uh, patios, they have a big, it looks like a jackhammer, but it has a flat thing on it. You sit there and it just beats you up. Bam, 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 that thing. If you just went out to a spot and just, just took one of those and just did a four-foot area and just compacted the hell out of it and waited, you'd see stuff start growing out of there. And what you're going to get, I don't know. I know what kind of thing you're going to get. You're going to get something that repairs compacted soil with a deep taproot. But you, all of a sudden, so you never knew it was there. Boom, it starts growing. And if you went out and you took and you got an, uh, uh, um, I can't remember what they're called now, the big forks that you use to loosen up the soil in your garden, a broad fork, and you took one of those and you, you loosened up the soil. You didn't touch it any other way. You just loosened up a four by four foot. Shit will start growing out there totally different. Right next to each other. Right next to each other. And if you take another area and you completely till it, certain stuff will start growing out of there that's totally different than what's in the broad fork piece and the compacted piece. And if you take a weed flame torch and you just completely burn to the ground a four by foot, other things will take off. So one way or another, whenever you do something to soil, you're going to cause some kind of a, a germination response to the seed bank that it's holding, which tends to mean once we get it doing what we want, the less we do to it, the better. This is one of the reasons you you know, you know wouldn't till. Though tilling can be used. Again, I already said you can use it, but that's what it's going to do. It's a germination trigger for weed seeds. So I'm not big on the whole solarizing thing. I don't think it works anywhere near as good as people say that it works. And most of the persistent weeds still grow in your surrounding area, and they just go by rhizome right back in there. So, again, you are your own best weed control. Uh, weed blockers work, so the next question is right on that. Plastic weed block versus fabric weed block. Is plastic okay, whatever? Look, I'm not one of these people like, you use plastic. You are killing the planet. You are everything that's wrong with the world. As I type that message to you on Facebook over my, my, my iPhone, it's in a plastic case or on a computer completely encased in plastic. I'm not that guy. I don't think plastic has to be bad all the time. I think there's a lot of problems with plastic, specifically with that ended up in the ocean, but most of that comes from China, right? So I've had people tell me, every piece of plastic eventually ends up in the ocean. I'm like, what kind of retard pill did you take this morning, really? Like, where do you even get this bullshit? Because, you know, we have these, and I'm not a fond of the landfills, but we have these landfills in Texas where the, the, the closest ocean is 400 miles away, and they're burying plastic, that plastic's not going in the ocean, right? So the problem is, though, you do end up with a waste product. You, you know, the plastic doesn't last forever. It maybe last two seasons if you're damn lucky. And you end up having to pull that plastic up, and you do have to get rid of it. If you can recycle it, I think that helps with the whole kind of, you know, environmental concern. Personally, I have found fabric weed block to work better, and I will burn fabric weed block, and I will not burn plastic. So... That kind of gives you my view of that because generally you do have to replace it season by season by season. Um, I have used uh, the fabric weed blocker primarily when I traveled a lot because I would be gone and I couldn't be my own best weed control, so it helps keep things down. But this is what I generally find happens when you use a weed blocker. Some really persistent weed like a crabgrass or something like that will find a place it can get out 
and you get you get because it's basically protected now, it gets a huge root system and it's hard to dislodge and get rid of. Where if you just mulch and you just watch and you see a weed coming up, you can just reach down and just it'll just pull out. About the only exception again are rhizome based weeds that climb in from outside. Even docks will come right out for you in a good friable soil. Um, next, dealing with the bad nematodes. Remember we talked about good guys and bad guys? Well, number one, if we're building really good, well-aerated, highly oxygenated soil, we're going to have a lot less problem with things like root-knot nematodes. Um, also, one of the chief uh, predators of the bad nematodes are the good nematodes, so we can introduce those. Um So good soil biology, and we're going to have the predators. And unlike some pests, like squash bugs, almost every bad nematode has some sort of a soil predator that will, will attack it. So that, that's the chief way that we can do with that. The person asked that question also said that primarily what they've done is pick nematode-resistant varieties of what they're growing. Do that. Don't, don't think that like you're cheating if you remember. There's no cheat. There's win and lose here, right? Uh, you know, do what works. Um, so that's the best way on that. Um, another question. Let me make sure I didn't go too far. Uh, weed control and garden pathways. You are your best weed control. <laughs> uh, I really like to take my pathways. And lay down two or three layers of cardboard and then completely cover them in wood chips. Deep wood chips. As deep as you can without them spilling over into your garden. I mean, so that when you walk, it feels like you're walking on a carpet. And you know what you have? You have a active, slow compost pile that's going to get fungal inoculation and constantly be a little bit moist because of the fact that you irrigate your garden. So that next season, you can take those wood chips and put them in your garden. They're halfway broken down, fungally inoculated to replace your mulch and bring your new wood chips in and put them right back down on, on your, your pathways. That's one way to do it. Another way to do it, white clover. If you live where white clover will do well, plant your garden pathways with white clover. You know, Clear them completely out, take them down to bare soil, Light sprinkling of white clover, because if you put too much in it, it can choke itself out. Either New Zealand or Dutch white clover, and it will keep out most of your grass and most of your other problems. And it will bring beneficial insects in, it will do all that wonderful stuff, and it, it will handle high traffic. So that, that would be probably my number one living method of doing that. A lot of people think, I know, I'll put gravel down, because stuff doesn't grow in rock. Let me tell you something, you want to see some shit grow, put down pea gravel. I mean, it, it will grow over so quick. And I've often thought, maybe there's a method here, except that it causes everything to grow. And it, it basically, if you think about the way gravel works, it's got it's, it's, it's big enough particles, it has decent aeration, it acts like a mulch, it keeps everything really wet. So if you put in a gravel pathway, you will grow more weed and grass than you could ever imagine. Um, to keep things from getting muddy around our pool filter, I put a couple uh, bags of like river stone around our pool filter every year, and I, I don't know where it goes because it just keep it, it's it's not built up over time. It's like it sinks down into the earth, and, and the plants grow. And, and I'm sure if you dig that up, it's a ton of them in there. 
But uh, yeah, it's it's basically encouraging growth. So be careful with anything like that in your pathways. Um, people ask about you know what's better, Three Sisters Garden, companion planning, etc. First of all, let's talk about what a Three Sisters Garden isn't. Almost every single thing that you see on the internet that somebody says this is my Three Sisters Garden is not a Three Sisters Garden. Uh, planting corn and beans and squash together does not make a Three Sisters Garden in the way that the technique was developed by Native Americans. It just doesn't. So how did the Native Americans use the Three Sisters Garden? And we'll understand why we probably won't really grow one unless we have the right kind of homestead where we can pretend to be Native Americans. So they would clear a glade, and a glade is just an open space in the woods. And they would do that with a combination of hand tools, basically primitive axes and saws, and, and fire. And they would end up with a lot of slash material. And then they would dig a hole. And they would take a lot of this, you know, woody, broken, just like hugo culture is what they call it here in America. But it, this actually is a hugo culture. It ends up with a hill. And they throw it in that hole. And they throw all the dirt back on top of it. And they make a big hill. A round hill. And not real high. You know, maybe a foot high, but big. Twelve foot round, let's say. And then they would take, and they would plant corn into that hill. Now you see what they've done. They've created a wood core garden in a big circle pattern. And they plant corn in there. And the corn they planted is not the sweet corn, which is another reason it doesn't work as well. These were old variety Indian corns that were used as a shell corn. In other words, a hard corn that you had to grind. Very, very thick um, husks. So they were pretty resistant to corn earworms, which were nowhere near as big a problem because there were not 10,000 acre farms of corn at the time. So they would plant this corn in there, and they'd let it get up to a certain height. And then they would go and they would plant beans. These are not your, you know, lazy housewife string beans. These were beans that were designed to be eaten as shell beans, hard beans. And they would let those beans come up. And once the beans got up, and now, you know, the corn stalk, these are corn stalks that would grow 11 feet tall sometimes. Huge corn. So the corn stalk's now three, four foot tall. It's growing in this beautiful, you know, fire blasted forest soil. And the beans are up about a foot, two foot up the vine. Then they would go in and plant squash, not, you know, zucchini, winter squash, stuff that stored well, that also had, uh, it had two usable parts. It had a flesh and a seed. The seed was a protein source. And then they did absolutely nothing. They just left it alone. They just left it alone. They put a whole bunch of them out in the spring, and that opened up a glade in the forest. And if they put in 100 of them, maybe 30, 40 would be successful to a degree. They would wait until everything basically started to die. And they would come back, and the corn, you just pull it off, and now you have a storable, dry ear of corn. Just like when you're going to feed corn, cornfield that hasn't been harvested yet, and the corn's hard as a rock. They would harvest that and store it. They'd pull the beans off, and the beans were to the point where the uh, the husk around the beans was dry as a bone. You pull those off, crumble it up, beans come out, sort the chaff off, you got a dry bean product. The squash, 
Plants are already starting to die back from the frost. There's a little frost on the pumpkin, but we haven't had them get messed up from being frozen. We harvest the squash. Now we've got three storable items. That's where the Three Sisters Garden was. So it's probably not something you're actually going to do, and anything else is just a form of companion planting. Companion planting. This is something I got really, really into at a time, and what I decided was it ain't worth it. The best thing you can do is just interplant herbs and flowers with your garden. And... Move stuff around and don't create monocultures and you'll have kind of a natural sort of companion planting. But when you're like, well, I'm planting peas and so I should plant. No, just find the herbs and flowering plants that will do well in and around your garden and plant lots of flowering plants and herbs. And, you know, yeah, don't plant 75 pepper plants in a row. Inner plant, whatever you're planting. But I am fine with, you know, this bed is a pepper bed it, because it just makes your life easier. And whenever you have a problem with a pepper and you're then addressing that problem in that bed, you're taking care of that problem for all peppers. See how that works out. So crop rotation, I don't get that big into it. Uh, and unless you have some sort of persistent disease, then I think the best form of crop rotation there is to just don't grow that thing for a season. And then maybe try it again and see if the disease goes away. We have a real problem with, with tomato blight down here. Uh, our winters just have not been cold enough to really knock back the soil-borne fungus that causes it. Um, it you know, so soil, uh, let's say pr uh, crop rotation, has a real place in true cropping systems. A garden is not a cropping system. A garden is a garden. And a system to which you can add organic matter and fertilizer and all of that every year and constantly be making the soil better doesn't really need as much rotation as a true farm. So that, that's how I feel about that because we're on the garden today. Um, somebody says, is treated lumber safe? I've gone into this laboriously. I always get haters emailing me telling me what I don't that I don't know when I talk when I what I'm talking about when I say this. I've given the scientific explanation for this numerous times. Um, yes, yes, it's it, it is scientifically impossible for you to adversely affect the nutritional quality of your food or put any sort of toxin into it on any meaningful level by building a raised bed out of treated lumber. I don't feel like doing this again, so you're just going to have to trust me. Yes, arsenic, not really anymore, but it doesn't even matter. It doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter. Treated lumber is safe. Someone asked if using whitewashing it would make it last longer. I kind of sort of doubt it. Uh, treated lumber, though, will, you know, in, in my climate, last freaking forever. Now, yours, I don't know. Um, it, it, it depends. Uh, but do not worry about using treated lumber, treated landscape timbers, and stuff, stuff like that. The exception is I would not use railroad ties or anything else that's been treated with creosote. Okay, that I don't want to use. And that's as much because of the uh, concerns about chemicals getting into the food. It's just to the nasty nature when uh, you get really hot days and stuff, and, that's, and that creosote weeps out. It's just gross. But, but treated, especially, you could make a case for not using treated lumber 20 years ago. 
You cannot make a case for not using treated lumber today, and I'm going to leave it at that. You, you, can't, you can try, but you would be wrong. And everything that you say will be wrong and based on inaccurate information. It just isn't a problem. Um, then I've had a, I had a couple different questions that I combined into one question. Nap weed, not weed, you know, whatever. Bind weed, etc. I have that one effing weed that won't go away. Um, again, I'm back to mechanical control is probably your best. If you build good soil in your gardens and you stay on top of it, you either have a weed coming up out of the bed itself, and if we keep removing that weed over time, we will ex exhaust the bank of seed or whatever is making that weed. And if we have something that grows from a root, we really want to try to get as much of that root out, if not all that root as possible. Then we have the same type of thing grows from a root, but it, but it invades our space. It lives over here in the path or over here in the lawn, and we have this nice, wonderful spot, and it just keeps sending out runners and showing up there. We need to keep removing it. It really is, again, we're on a garden, not a farm level here. And if we do that over time, we will win the war. Especially if we, this is what I like about raised beds. It gives you a clearly design, uh, defined space. It's your mighty wall on the border of your garden, right? And when you see something invade that space, it must go away now. It must die. It must terminate its existence. Unless it's a easily pulled out weed that's good chicken food or good compost material. And then we might let it grow a little while. But the stuff that is the chronic problem, you have to stay on that. And at the beginning of your season, if you have to go out to your garden every other day and pull it out, do it. You will eventually win the war. That's, that's what I'll tell you. Um, tree roots in the garden bed. How do you handle tree roots in the garden bed? With a sawzall. Your tree is not going to die. If you have to cut a main root close to the trunk of your tree, your garden is in the wrong place where the tree has to go. But some tree sending a root out that's you know 20 feet away from the tree, and you got a root in there even as big as your wrist, pull it out, cut it off, get rid of it. If it's not really in the way but it's down there, cut it off before it reaches your garden, just cut through it with a sawzall, and leave it down there and let it rot and let it be part of the wood core. But that's how you deal with them. You cut them off. Um, and a sawzall, to me, is the best tool. Uh, now, if you're digging a ditch or something, a lot of times you can use, um, like, tree loppers. But to me, a sawzall, the blades are cheap. You can put the blade right down in the dirt, unlike a chainsaw, and just, and just cut it off. Uh, next up, um, Is it okay to use sand in a raised bed? And when this person asks us, they're not talking about an amendment like lava sand. They mean you know, sand, sand. Uh, people with sand hate it. It's actually not that hard to deal with, but it, it's, it is an issue that has to be dealt with, so don't give yourself that issue. This particular person basically said they want to raise up the area the beds are going in, and the sand is cheap as fill. What's going to happen then is you're probably going to create a, a highly drained, highly erosive situation that over time is going to kind of break down and go away. I would use screened topsoil for that, and if you check around, you can probably buy it for almost as cheap as sand. I think my cost for my material yard for screen compost is about $2.50 a yard more for screen topsoil than sand. So I, I would tend not to do that unless you had no other choice. 
Um, is compost tea safe or is it a bacterial cesspool? I don't know. It depends on how your compost is made and what condition it's in. If you have good aerobic compost, lots of air, it doesn't stink, it smells good, it's nice and friable, and you make compost tea from that, If you left it sit around long enough, I guess it could become a, a bacterial cesspool, but immediately when you use it, it there's, there's nothing wrong with it. The main question was, you know, if I'm putting down compost tea and I'm eating my plants, like, it's like, do I have to worry that I put compost tea on there last week and now I'm harvesting lettuce? In general, no, but if you're using compost tea and you've, you've treated recently, you don't wash your, your produce with water. And you're probably fine. Now, again, if you think compost tea is you took some stinky horse shit and put it in a bucket and it hadn't been composted, okay, now you have totally. So I have to be careful when I answer that question because I'm not saying you can just do stuff like this. Good, high quality compost that smells good, that would pass the microscope test if you put it under a microscope test, is not going to make a bacterial cesspool uh, compost tea. And one way we can do that is we can agitate our compost tea while we're brewing it with an air stone or a water pump or something like that. We put lots of oxygen in there. We stay in an oxygen-rich environment, make the tea, and get it out. Don't leave it sit around because it certainly, yes, it can become a cesspool. If you go and take, you know, I've seen people like, well, I, under, I know what I'm going to do. Uh, I do like Jack, and I raise ducks. So I have kiddie pools that I dump every other day, and they're full of duck shit tea. So I'm going to make compost tea out of that. I'm going to go take you know a couple cups of that and put that in a, 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 a garbage can and brew it up with an air stone. You're brewing duck shit bacteria. Now that would be a problem. That's an example of an improper use of a useful resource. Um, next, uh, should you use a fertility schedule and do I have one? Yeah, but it's kind of like Excel. I won't give you my Excel spreadsheets because I want you to learn to make your own. So I'm not going to give you specifically what my schedule is. But I'm going to tell you the most important thing about having a fertility schedule, i.e., I'm going to fertilize at the beginning of the season, you know, six weeks into the season, 12 weeks into the season, and near the fall harvest season, or whatever it is, because you do it. It's not that critical when. With some exceptions, you don't go spray a foliar feed onto a plant in the middle of the day in the summer and burn the plant up and have everything evaporate before the plant can get the nutrient anyway. That's that's the type of thing that's an exception. Um, but you know, if you fertilize, you know, you go out, pull mulch back, and sprinkle Doctor Earth around all your pepper plants uh, six weeks after you put them out or eight weeks after you put them out, as long as they weren't showing deficiencies, it doesn't matter. It just matters that it happened. So don't get too wrapped up. Look at your life. Look at the, the growth cycle of the plants. Try to be reasonable. See what seems reasonable. Look at the instructions that come with the product. Because you might not use the products I recommend. There's other good products out there. It's not like I have the only good products to recommend, right? Um, but then by setting that schedule, you'll know, okay, my garden got fertilized beginning, mid, and end season. Right, And some people say, well, when this happens, that's when you need to put extra potash on it. No. If you use the type of regimen I'm talking about, everything that's necessary is always being added at all times. So everything will be fine. But the schedule is more about keeping you accountable to doing things annually, you know, a certain number of times. And then also we want to – so we have a schedule. That's our base. 
And then we have, oh, gee, look at those pepper plants in that one container garden. They're starting to get yellow. That's almost always with peppers and nitrogen deficiency. And then some more I'll tell you online. Never supplemental nitrogen to peppers. They'll grow really huge and not grow any peppers. No, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. I've seen one example of that actually happening. And what happened was an organic farmer put down, some, he came up with some windfall, and he put down something like a foot deep of worm castings. And he grew pepper plants that were six foot tall and didn't have a pepper on them. And it was a problem until they did put peppers on. So they, they delayed their fruit production, but then they still produced like mad. Okay, when I when I built my gardens out of 100% compost and wood core in uh, in Arkansas, and they grew five foot tall pepper plants, they were covered in peppers. So so don't believe that myth. I want to display, you know, get rid of myths. But um, when you see a deficiency, address it, and then stick to your schedule. Otherwise, um, chopping and dropping old plants, uh, people uh, and weeds as well. So some people think, well, I'm going to pull this weed out. I'm going to throw it up on top of the mulch, and it's going to attach and grow back. Probably not, right? Now, if you if you take a crabgrass rhizome, and you pull it out, and then you pull your mulch back, and you throw it under there to let it be devoured by worms, it's and it's sitting against moist soil, it probably will grow back. So use some common sense with it, but in most instances, you can just throw it up on top of the bed. I do believe in breaking, giving Mother Nature an advance on breakdown. So let's say that you had your, your end of year came and you had six pepper plants in a bed. You're going to have like, basically, again, a pepper is not really an annual. We grow it as an annual because that's what we do. But it's a woody perennial. It's, it, they usually live six to eight years in the wild or in a, in a climate, a, a, a tropical climate. I've seen some people in tropical climates that have pepper plants that are 12 years old. So it's a very woody plant. And so the end of a season, if you had a pepper plant that got two, three foot tall, you've got this little wooden frame. So this is what I do. I take a pair of pruners, you know, like Felco's is my favorite pruner, and I go right down as low as I can to the soil, and I, I prune it flush with the soil. Leave the roots alone. No reason to pull that up. No reason to create a germination trigger. Let's leave it in there. Then I take those pruners, and I cut that pepper plant up in smaller pieces, pull the mulch back, throw all those pieces on the bare soil, and put the mulch back over it. I've just fed worms, I've fed fungi, I've fed biology, and I've done no work. I haven't hauled it away and composted it and had to turn it, you know, six times over 23 days or whatever. I've just fed it back to the soil. The fungi will do the job. They know what to do. If I want to plant again right away, usually that would be the end of the season. I'm going to take a break. I don't really grow through the winter anymore. I like the downtime. Um... It's just one thing I don't have to do when it's cold outside. But if I, if I, let's say I had a pepper, I had a plant, doesn't matter what it is, that had a big root mass like that, and people are like, well, now I want to put a lettuce plant in. Cut it off at the ground, make a hole an inch away from the root ball, stick it in there. That dying root ball will become a fast carbon pathway for the new plant. It's that simple. Okay, so chop and drop, definitely. Um, creating vertical growing spaces for wicking beds in large containers. Basically, this guy said, hey, uh, when I try to grow a tomato in some of my wicking beds, I really don't have anything for them to climb on. What do I do? Well, you have to build something. What? I don't know. It depends on what your resources are. You know, you could put two 10-foot 4x4s uh, in the ground a foot, and you have an 8-foot high thing, 
And you could attach uh, something like a piece of hog panel to it or lattice or whatever. But, you, I mean, you you got to figure out what you're going to do there. I, I really don't know. You can use tomato cages. You, know, you can put them around. The problem I have with tomato cages, I think tomato cages are great for supporting pepper plants. That's that's my problem. Like tomatoes, like I've never seen a tomato cage high enough to actually support the tomato uh, as it grows through the season. So if you had a tomato cage that was eight foot tall, I might think tomato cages are great. But that seems like an awful lot of resource to grow a tomato plant. So it's it's up to you what you use. But I recommend that you you know kind of just think about what will look good and what could be function stacked. If you were to build something, could you build it so that you could throw, uh, you know, greenhouse film over it and start your season earlier, warm that bed up, so to become part of that support system for you? Even if, let's say, you're going to do it on the back side, on the north side of your bed, uh, can you have some sort of temporary thing that can be installed in in the winter where you can go ahead and either start early or just warm it up early? Would be a way to function stack that. Um, using manures uh, that were unique in manures, like, I mean, people, I think, have a pretty good grasp on, you know, composting chicken manure with straw, composting horse manure and cow manure, etc. But one guy asked about llama. He called them llama beans. I, I don't know um, what llama manure is like. I don't know if it's a cool manure or a hot manure, but it certainly would work. It's probably very... Uh, Probably closer to horse manure. It's probably got a lot of uh, woody material in it. It's probably cooler than something like chicken or cow, but I don't really know. So when you say beans, I think that way. Somebody asked about deer. I don't know where you're going to come up with a bunch of deer manure. I've never used deer manure as a as a, a fertility aid. I certainly would. Uh, my estimation with deer manure is it could be pull the mulch back, throw it on, cover it up, just like rabbit manure, and go on with your life, and it would do great. To me, it seems very rabbit manure-like, but it's beyond my pay grade. I don't know for a fact that you can use deer manure cold, but I can't see that you wouldn't. Uh, being a deer hunter, you spend a lot of time looking for deer sign, and manure is something that you look for. And it's very clear when manure is fresh, a couple days old, very old, or very, very old. And when it gets very, very old, it basically looks like dried-out pellets of plant material. It doesn't look like dog poop or anything like that. So my instinct would be deer manure would not only be fine, but not necessarily actually compost it. If you wanted to hedge your bet and you do seasonal gardening, it could always be something, I don't. again, I don't know if you just walk around the woods putting deer manure in a bag or something, because I've been to places where you could. There's like a pile there and a pile there and a pile there, and it doesn't really stink, especially if it's a couple days old and dried out a little bit, so... I don't know, but like if you wanted to kind of hybrid any manure, rabbit, deer, whatever, with using it right away or composting it, then at the end of your season, pull your mulch back, lay your manure and other organic material down, put the mulch back over, maybe a fresh layer of mulch, and then wait till spring to plant. You should be way good with deer manure at that point. Again, I would say probably with llama manure, don't know. Llama people that compost, let me know. Uh, a lot of people with problems with sand. Everything around me is sand, and you're the ones that like when the guy's like, can I use sand to make a raised bed? You're like, oh, why would you do that to yourself? Sand actually is not that big of a problem. Do all the shit that I said, and your sand problem will go away. So, um, you know, bring in some compost and whatever, till it into your sand, build a bed, whether it's raised or in the ground, keep adding the organic matter, and sand will turn into sandy loam. It would be hard to do. 
with 10 acres, but with a garden that's, let's say, four, four by eight beds, it's not a problem. Um, as you water, sand drains like crazy. That's one of the re it doesn't really, it's gutless. It doesn't really retain much moisture. But if there's a big raised bed sitting on top of it, that when it, when it, whatever drains through that bed and it hits that sand, it's not really going to go, it's not going to really go down, down contour, right? It's not going to go 90 degrees to contour downhill. Some of it will, but most of it's going to sink straight down. And over time with irrigating, you'll reach a point where even if the sand over, you know, 10 feet away is bone dry a foot down, the sand underneath your garden will have moisture down there. And since sand is so easy to penetrate, your plants will be incredibly deep-rooted, and they will take some mineral from the sand. The problem is most of the sand we're talking about here is, is primarily silica, and it doesn't have a lot of nutrient in it like, like a green sand or lava sand does, but it works. Additionally, things like uh, expanded shale, lava sand. People say, why would you add sand to sand to make it retain moisture? Because lava sand retains moisture like nobody's business. So tilling in lava sand and stuff like that, as you build the bed on top of it, will do wonders for you. It's really not the problem that you think it is. Dig versus no dig, till versus no till, etc. Uh, lots of questions on that. Um, look, <laughs> do what works best for you. If you have a problem with, like, see, like, there are people that basically they plant their garden almost like the Indians with the three sisters. They they plant a row of tomatoes, a row of peppers, a row of cucumbers, whatever. They do three or four big harvests a year, one big one at the end of the year. That's how my grandparents did it. And they didn't do a lot of work. So my grandfather used a tiller. My grandfather would mark out the beds, and we would, we would dig and till, and then we would compost, mulch, plant, and we pretty much didn't worry that much about weeds except the easy ones to get out. Now, we lived in Pennsylvania. It was a relatively short growing season, lots of natural rain, really good crops, selected for the thing. His peppers, his tomatoes, his cucumbers were from safe seeds for 25 years, right? So that worked there. And that was the garden was a subsistence garden. If, if my grandmother couldn't make, you know, 50 quarts of pickles and 50 quarts of relish, out of the cucumber patch that year and a, and a crock of crock pickles, then it wasn't worth doing. It was done for that reason. It was a survival garden. So we, you know, we figured out the tomato that grew right. We did that, and you might have to do a little weed control around the cucumbers. The tomatoes, I, I would have to go cut eight foot long saplings for for steaks, and when that tomato's up that big, we didn't care what grew underneath that tomato. It didn't matter. So next year was just easy to till. I do things differently now. I do things a lot smaller scale than that card, too. Again, that was like a quarter acre. So I tend to do a no-till, no-dig. Curtis Stone is farming multiple backyards as a spin farmer, growing for market. He has to get a certain amount of production out every week through the growing season, or he can't pay his bills. He uses a tiller, and he uses weed blocker. And he uses a torch, uh, like a weed torch, to cut holes in the weed blocker so there's a perfect hole there. And it works. It all works. Anybody that says, well, this works and this doesn't is usually full of crap unless what they're saying doesn't work is throwing seeds on top of a parking lot. Even conventional gardening works. That's why people do it.
it's not good for the soil, right? It's not good for the environment. And it's not the best way to grow plants, but it works. A miracle grow works, right? So be careful when people say something doesn't work. Uh, another person, I don't know if they're just trolling me or whatever, will wood chips cause termites? Wood chips on top of the ground generally won't a great deal, but they can. I have found termites in garden beds. If I use the wood chips in my garden, in my pathways or whatever, will termites go into my house? If termites will go into your house and are going to go into your house because of the situation with the way your house is built and your land and the termite population where you live, they're going to go into your house whether you have piles of wood chips or not. Your wood chips will not cause termites. And the caution I gave last week was don't mulch deep wood chips right up against the wall of your house. That's the one thing I wouldn't do. But if your garden is separated by 15, 20 feet from your house, I think you can use all the wood chips you want, and you have very little to worry about. Termites are a natural part of our environment, and as long as they're not eating our house, we're good. And this is the other interesting thing, you know? You don't generally see them eating that treated lumber, do you? All right, so just... Kind of pointing that out. So your raised beds generally don't get eaten by termites if you build them out of uh, treated lumber. Um, wood cores. When we talked about wood cores, like people call culture, absolutely can cause termite colonies. So don't do that right up against your house either. But even, again, 25, 30 feet, I'm not worried about it. Because if those suckers are getting in your house, they're getting in there anyway. I am built, you know, concrete slab on top of wood and brick. I'm not that worried uh, here at all. Uh, worm castings, worm tea, and worm compost tea. Uh, best ways to use them, and, and we know what's better, what isn't. Uh, first of all, the, the, the person said that asked this question didn't really ask about worm tea, they just think they did. They asked about worm compost tea. They said, what's the best way to use worm castings? I'm thinking, you know, worm tea. So if you're using ca castings to make tea, what you're doing is you're taking castings and put them in something like a bag, and you're soaking them to make a compost tea. That's a great thing. Those castings are still good. Castings, the best thing to do with them, in my opinion, pull the mulch back from around your plants and sprinkle them around your plants like fertilizer because that's what they are. I think they're generally about a 1-1-1 fertilizer or it's a 1.11, something like that. It's pretty low, but it's all bioavailable, and inevitably there's worm eggs and stuff like that in there, and you're increasing biology, and they're wonderful. Then there's worm tea. Worm tea, when you call it just worm tea, is when you are composting with worms, you have a drainage point, and water, and it looks kind of icky and nasty, but it doesn't stink or smell bad. The worms produce, and, and the breakdown, it comes out of the bottom. We haven't soaked anything. That stuff's great. You can generally uh, dilute it with water, anything from 50-50 to, to 10 to 1. And you can put it right on your plants, right on your garden. It's great for biological activity. And then worm compost tea is where we take castings and make tea. It's like any other compost tea. right? So uh, if I had unlimited worm castings, I would be mostly putting the castings right on the top of the soil and letting nature take over from there. That's all the stuff from social media. And, boy, this turned into a monster of a show two hours long. So I'll try to finish up fast. What I want to finish with is there is no magic bullet. I don't want anybody out there to feel like you're inadequate, you've done something wrong because this particular plant always gets squash bugs and dies. This particular plant always gets a fungus. I 
was the, the king of tomatoes in Pennsylvania. I could look at the ground and make a tomato come out of it. Here, I produce tomatoes, but no, I mean, it's almost not worth it anymore. I, I have failures. You know, I have a hard time growing squash without, you know, planting two packages of it across the whole property and getting lucky wherever it shows up, right? So I don't grow squash in my garden generally. Or I plant zucchini squash really, really early, and I know I'm going to get a bunch of zucchini, and then the plant's going to die, and I'm going to put something else in there. And I just don't worry about it. Weeds grow in gardens that are good gardens. You know, Jeff Lawton, I, he, he, he's right, but he doesn't explain it all the time with the videos he makes. He'll be like, we don't have weeds germinating here because we have high fertility. Yeah, there's weeds that will generate where there's high fertility and grow really good there. Okay, They'll grow less, but you can still have some weeds be a problem. You can have a weed that is a rhizome-based weed that climbs into your garden and grows up into your garden, and it's really happy about its roots past your garden. It's just getting moisture from your garden. Stuff happens. All you can do is deal with it, figure out what works for you. And this is why, even though I'm not a huge fan of tilling, it's like I'm not going to tell you not to till. Not It might fit what you're doing better than anything else. So there's no magic bullet. Don't get down on yourself when you have problems. Go slow, find the things that work for you, and make it happen. With that, we are wrapped up. I want to go really fast today, so I just wanted to let you know about our Amazon item of the day. Uh, every day I do uh, a product review for an Amazon item. And today fits great with what we're, we're talking about. One of the best things you can do to be happy with the fact that you're a gardener is grow a few things you literally can't mess up. I'm going to give you one a day. It will outcompete any weed you will ever find. It's almost as far, I've never seen a disease affect it. I've never seen a pest eat it. I don't think even deer will eat the top part of it. But the only thing you have to worry about is maybe pigs digging it up and eating the roots, which is the part you would eat. It is Jerusalem artichokes. And I have a company I've bought from on Amazon a couple of times called Yum Heart Gardens. They sell Jerusalem artichokes by the pound. And one bed of Jerusalem artichokes, and you will have enough Jerusalem artichokes to eat for damn near ever. They are a tuber. Um, they are high in inulin, which means even though they have carbohydrate, uh, a lot of it is an indigestible carbohydrate, so it's, it's good to be on the paleo-ish world. Uh, they are a good substitute for every, anything from water chestnuts to potatoes. They can cause a fart reaction. Yeah, it's lots of gas. Uh, I talk in the article about how to mitigate some of that, how to ferment them. They are fantastic fried, sliced thin and fried. Uh, they're just a great product. They're like a survival product. Like, you know this thing will grow. And if you do a big container and you plant these in it, the beautiful thing is they'll send out runners. That runner will hit the container. And when it hits that container, it will say, ah, I've reached my limit. And it will set tubers, and it will have tubers set not you know, through the whole thing, but most of your tubers will be set all around the edges, which means you can just reach down and pull them out. If you heavily mulch, you can leave them in the ground and just go out and pull some out whenever you need them. How awesome is that? In the ground, they're great, but they can get a little bit, you know, they can go other places. They can become, quote, unquote, invasive. I'll tell you how to handle it so you never have to worry about it again. I learned this from Dave Jackie. If you have Jerusalem artichokes growing and they've, ex they've expanded their range to a place you don't want them, and you see them come up, and they're like about six inches tall, you go, ah, that's a Jerusalem artichoke. And you reach down and you yank that sucker, and it breaks off. You will make it angry, very, very angry like the Incredible Hawking. It will not like it when it's angry, and it will send out uh, laterals and put out lots of little nodules and come back even meaner. 
And every time you don't get every piece of it out, that's what's going to happen. If you wait till they're about a foot and a half to two foot tall, depending on the variety, and you reach down to pull it out, it'll just come out like really easy. You'll be like, well, what happened? And you'll see the, 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 the tuber. And when you, when you grab it, it'll be hollow. It will have expended all of the reserve energy, and it's now relying on the, the plant. That tuber gave its life so that the plant could now make 100 tubers. But you've pulled it out before it had a chance. So you just keep checking. When, they, when one comes out easy and it's used up, then you can just pull them all out, and they won't grow there. It's that simple. So give Jerusalem artichoke a chance. It's one of those things that will grow well for you. Most people like it. Um, just think about where you put it because it's going to be there for a, quite a while uh, once you do. And you can always help support the Survival Podcast by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. And all of the links in today's show notes that go to Amazon, you'll be supporting us if you use those. So think about that when you're making your purchasing decisions. As always, you can become a member to support us, but we're going to be just mention that real quick because we're, you know, run long today. Uh, today we have for our song of the day to finish up the show a song by Jordy. Jordy apparently is a band that um, I don't remember which member of ACDC now was in the email from John Adam, but one of the members of ACDC actually was a front man for Jordy at one time. Jordy, I think, is actually refers to a dialect within you know, a subset of British accents uh, from the UK, but I, I could be wrong. Um, and we're doing cover week, so this is a cover by Jordy, and this is House of the Rising Sun, uh, which if I ask anybody, well... Who was the first person to do House of the Rising Sun? A lot of people consider this a music trivia type to be like, it was the animals. Uh, they were the ones that were successful with it. This song is so old, they don't really know who wrote it. They're not really sure where it exactly came from. It kind of became kind of a black folk song in the 1800s. There's a couple options as to what the rising, House of the Rising Sun actually is. Sounds an awful lot like a brothel. And there's, there was a brothel called that. Uh, it was there so long ago, it was uh, during the Union occupation of the South. It eventually was shut down and went there a long time. And then there was a women's prison that um, also has potential to have actually been uh, the inspiration for the concept of the House of the Rising Sun. So it was, it was recorded by quite a few people. Then the animals did it, and they blew up with it. And it then became one of the most covered songs out there. And the reason is it's what you would call royalty-free. Like, no one can claim ownership of the song itself. They can claim ownership of their, their variation of it, but they can't claim ownership of the song. So it's one of those wide-open covers, and that's why it's been covered by so many people. The other thing I want to point out about this song is yesterday I talked about how the reason the Three Doors Down version of that smell, by, you know, originally from Leonard Skinner, worked so well, is that they just did it the way Skinner, as best they could the way Skinner did it. They didn't make it their own. This one's a little different. I do feel like... Uh, Jordy made this song kind of their own. It is, it's consistent with the original, but it has its own thing going on, and I like it, and I hope you will too. It is one of my favorite songs ever. I always loved this song. It's one of those songs that when I used to hang out as a young man with friends, that we sang out at apartments and get 20 people together on a weekend. We had you know guys that could play guitar and all that we'd always end up doing as a sing-along or what have you. Anyway, this might be a little bit different than any way you've ever heard it before. And with that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
ruin of many poor boys and God I know I'm one Tell your children. 